there have been other cataclysms in world history, other plagues and pandemics that have altered reality in unimaginable ways. But never before have so many children worldwide been out of school at the same time and for the same reason. And never before have so many parents, educators, and innovators been as focused on the task of creating challenging environments in which children, and particularly the world's most vulnerable children, can learn safely. This is Learning to Overcome, a podcast produced by Matter Unlimited in partnership with Imaginable Futures and UNICEF. I'm Gwen Tompkins. For many communities worldwide, September marks the beginning of the school year, and our guests will be talking about their best ideas for teachers and teaching at this time. Wendy Kopp is with us. In 1989, she founded Teach for America, training and placing college graduates in schools across the United States to address an acute teacher shortage. In 2007, she founded Teach for All, a network of entrepreneurial organizations designed to meet similar educational needs in schools worldwide. Teach for All is active in more than 50 nations. Wendy Kopp joins us from New Jersey. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. And Dr. Joan Osa Oviawe is also with us. She's an education specialist based in southwestern Nigeria. Dr. Oviawe is the executive chair of the Edo State Universal Basic Education Board. She's a special advisor to the governor of Edo State, and she spearheaded teacher training at 1,500 public schools there. We have her from Benin City. That's the capital of Edo State. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Gwen. Thanks for having me. So here we are. I'm very excited to talk with you. This is the issue that is challenging all of us around the world at this time, trying to figure out what to do with the more than billion children who need to learn. Now, both of you are now having to address how schools must adapt to these unusual times. So let's start with you, Wendy Kopp. Uh, Now is the time for leadership in education. In recent years, you've been advocating for what you call generative collective leadership to determine what happens in schools in communities worldwide. What does that mean? And where do the teachers fit in your vision? When we talk about collective leadership, we mean, you know, we do need lots of individual leaders, a lot of leaders at every level. You know, we need people around the whole ecosystem. We see many people from students and their parents to teachers and school leaders to community leaders and community elders and and policymakers working together to develop a shared vision for young people and commit to the kind of changes we need to see to really reinvent the system. Mm hmm. You know, one of the very first things I heard when schools had shut down in Morocco was that the brand new cohort of first year teachers had mobilized to keep their early childhood kids um, learning through WhatsApp. And, you know, when I started understanding what that took, um, you know, there's a particular teacher with Teach for Morocco who was trying to get all of the moms to download WhatsApp so that she could keep learning going by sending videos and assignments, which the parents would then send back to her. And because of some of the traditions, the religious traditions in her community, she had trouble getting all the moms to sign up. Um, But she worked, built relationships with some of the most influential moms and with the grocery store owner um, 
who started marketing this to the other moms saying, you need to do this so that your kids can keep learning. So I just think about all the people who came together to ensure that these young kids could keep learning during this era. And, and that kind of commitment and collective leadership, we've seen so many examples, um, you know, all, all across the world. So the teachers and parents and the local grocery store owner are all playing a part in this. They're the leaders that you're talking about. Ah, so Dr. Joan Osa Oviawe, in March, when public and private schools closed their doors across Nigeria, we heard reports of digital learning um, for children who have access to smartphones or iPads or computers. And for those who cannot afford these devices, some states in Nigeria tried giving lessons on government-sponsored radio stations or WhatsApp. So how did the public schools in Edo State there in southwestern Nigeria, how did they initially respond to the pandemic? So, yes, for us, like everywhere else in the world, nobody really prepared for the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And so what that meant was uh, we needed to go back to the drawing board to figure out, you know, given our own infrastructural constraints, how do we deliver online learning? So we didn't want to go the route of TV and radio because with those uh, methods, it's a bit challenging to determine how to access how many children are actually learning because you don't know when a child is going to tune in um, to the radio and listen to on-air lessons. So we decided that for us in adult state public schools, we are going to do something different. And so we launched Edo Best at Home. And so when school was supposed to resume officially on April 27th, we resumed school online. (laughs) What that meant was that um, every week since April 27th, we upload the lessons for each grade level. So we start from the kindergarten to the equivalent of high school. We designed it in collaboration with our technical partner, Bridge International Academies, in such a way that um, every child would have up to four hours of learning at home. We had, um, in addition to the lessons online, we also had digital storybooks, interactive quizzes via WhatsApp, and then we also had um, um, virtual classrooms. So for us, because... Um, most homes have smartphones, particularly in the cities. So it was easy for the parents to be incorporated into the online learning. This is not to say that it wasn't challenging. It was. We had to do a lot of um, community sensitization. And in the rural areas, and particularly remote and riverine areas, where there wasn't really um, strong uh, network signals, we had to devise alternative ways of getting the content to the children. For instance, what kind of alternative ways would you have to find for people who are living in very rural agricultural areas with slow internet service? In those cases, the alternatives that we had were offline options. So essentially, somebody who has a good network would download our the lessons, the content, and make photocopies and then distribute to them. 
Ah. We had the other offline option that was then introduced was um, small cluster learning, you know, where in the community, if there's a teacher resident in the community, they would, you know, gather together five or six children and just were teaching them in an open area. That's fascinating. It's an interesting combination between 21st century digital technology and old school, let's sit outside and and learn about the world kind of uh, learning. Um, Exactly. Wendy Cobb, has the time between March, when most schools closed worldwide, and now given Teach for All particular insights into what you all should and should not be doing in this next school year? Can you give us some specific examples based on any of the mm. the countries where Teach for All is active? Mm. Well, I think our teachers are, and, and the alumni educators who are, are part of our network are, are learning so much. And as you, as you well know, you know, there's such a diversity of context. I mean, probably even within Nigeria, you know, as we just heard in terms of some kids not having access to even a phone and, and others having access to even higher bandwidth technology than that. So we're learning so much across each of these different um, sort of environments. I mean, we've certainly seen the potential, um, and it's so inspiring to hear this example from Dr. Obiawe about, you know, what they were able to do across a whole, it sounds like, state in Nigeria. It's amazing. You know, we too have seen the real potential um, when kids do have devices and and connectivity, um, but we've also seen that you know, we could be heading towards even greater inequity in the world if we don't invest in both you know, getting all kids up to a certain level of connectivity and also in our teachers. Um, because if anything, we've seen that to keep kids learning during this time, even with the benefit of technology, requires more from our teachers in terms of, um, you know, their abilities to, to build relationships with students and families, um, their ability to use the technology Um, to teach differently and in a way that really leverages the power of technology to differentiate education, to foster student ownership. The the really inspiring thing we've seen is that even when kids do have access to, say, a phone and, and enough data to use, say, WhatsApp or Messenger, we've seen that teachers can use that to literally possibly even affect more educational gains than they would have in a classroom without that that mechanism. I think about a teacher in Pakistan named Rabia who, you know, was teaching two classes of 50 girls um, and in light of the lockdown has been working with these 100 girls. Um, She created a WhatsApp school and has said that she's never seen the level of First of all, parent engagement, because they can look and see exactly what their kids are doing. Um, Student ownership, they can now, and and differentiation. She can now, you know, she was watching students sometimes watch three times a video that she sends while other students will watch it once. And then they, you know, complete the assignments, send them back and get individualized feedback from her. And she's, you know, she's saying basically we'll never go back. Like even when we come back together, which we can't wait to do, we'll continue the WhatsApp school because it's done so much to advance the learning of of girls. And Dr. Oviawe, you know, you're on the front lines there in uh, Western Nigeria. You know, you've got 15,000 teachers in your state. 15,000 people can't agree on anything. 
<laughs> but what are you hearing from teachers in terms of their greatest concerns moving into a new school year? Yes, I think the concerns are actually quite, um, they vary. The younger teachers are excited. They are looking forward to uh, resumption of school. I guess just because um, quite a lot of people are just tired of being at home. So there's uh, a desire for normalcy to resume. And then for the older teachers, so people who are 50 years and above, and for those who have underlying um, health conditions like diabetes, high blood pressure, and so on and so forth. So there's some level of concern there because they want to make sure that it's safe for them to, to go back to school. And so for us, in preparation for school resumption, hopefully in September, we are taking um, proactive steps to put together a training for all our teachers, both online and offline. There have been challenges, but for me, the biggest surprise has been how adaptive our teachers have been and how willing they were to learn new skills and embrace the use of technology. I was just going to say that we saw such a desire on the part of the teachers all across our network to start learning from each other quickly. You know, first, like, so what did they learn in China about keeping kids learning? You know, and so we've seen so many teacher networks pop up. I mean, there are, you know, 1,500 teachers across Teach for All in a WhatsApp group on teaching without the internet, sharing solutions, and ultimately synthesizing best practices for teaching without internet, which, which can serve those teachers well in the coming year. Um, we have another group, a community of teachers who are delivering lessons on radio, all learning from each other um, about how to do that in more effective ways. So I hope that's another thing that that we can hold on to as, as we continue into in hopefully, again, in-person learning. Um, you know, hopefully we can keep the global networks going because we've just seen firsthand the ways in which that have those have accelerated progress. Very interesting. Very interesting. As both of you have already mentioned, academic success hinges on so many factors that are outside of the classroom, including whether children feel physically safe in their homes or in their neighborhoods, uh, whether they have regular access to food, whether they have free access to the tools they need to learn, which by that I mean the internet, which is awfully slow in many, many parts of the world. So how are your respective organizations Teach for All, as well as the school system in southwestern Nigeria, in in Edo State, how are you all addressing issues that fall outside of the classroom, but that are so crucial to success within the classroom? So for us, we had to spend several weeks and months distributing palliatives to the um, socially vulnerable in our communities. And that's the group where majority of our students come from. So they are from low-income families. And so we had to provide uh, the government, the Edo State government, had to provide um, palliatives across the state. Then also we categorized our student uh, population. So those who have learning disability, a child that is visually impaired, we don't yet have the technological tool for them to learn at home by themselves. 
And so we had to come up with, in our palliatives, we included uh, different um, tools and gadgets that uh, those, the children with disabilities, could use to do some sort of self-study at home. I'm very curious about what you just said. You said that the palliatives that the school district is sending home to children who have special needs, that you are including certain tools. What kinds of tools are you sending to these kids? And you know, So, yeah. What, can you describe any of them? Yes. So for the children that are hearing impaired, so we had drawing books and crayons. So something that they can, you know, work with at home, do some coloring because they can see, but they just cannot hear. And then for the ones that are visually impaired, we included in their package little um, portable radios that they could play at home to listen to um, lessons. And then also, because we recognize that in some homes or in some households, there might not be somebody who can read and write. And so in those cases, we set up a toll-free number, and we had a group of teachers that we called mobile tutors. So the mobile teachers essentially would call. If, if somebody were to call us, maybe a grandparent, call our number to say, oh, I have a, my grandchild is in one of your school, but I don't understand the lessons because I, don't, I can't read. So a mobile teacher would call that child and walk with them over the phone. Once I remember teaching in a secondary school, and one of the main concerns for teaching was to command the attention of the students and to hold it. And that's something that people have been trying to master for millennia, (laughs) you know, how to hold the attention of young people and all. And so are you confident that in social distance learning that children will stick with the tools that are at their disposal at this time, smartphones, iPads, computers, as a major force in how they actually learn, you know what I mean? And not just rote learning, but learning in terms of being able to freely express oneself and exchange ideas. I can say that, you know, we convened the students, about 20 students across our student leader advisory committee, Um, And so these are students from, you know, every kind of country. I mean, from Denmark to India to Ghana, et cetera. And and we asked them this exact question around, you know, what was their experience with distance learning? And what we heard from all of them, from, you know, the student in Denmark, where all students seem to have laptops and, and high bandwidth access, um, to, to students who, who actually didn't even have, you know, had, had access to a phone, a shared phone in, in a community, um, was that, you know, the number one issue is student motivation. And what they said was that where they had a teacher who had built relationships with them and was constantly in touch with them, with their parents, who built a sense of community among the students themselves, their motivation was there. And, you know, one of the students, in fact, the student from Denmark said, you know, what, what I've learned through this time is that some students, some teachers want to teach content and some teachers want to teach kids. Um, so, again, we've just seen so much about the power. I mean, the technology is really important. And if we could get to 
every kid having a device and, and connectivity, it would be a tremendous thing, but it won't be sufficient. You know, we'll need to invest so much in a teaching force um, who, who know how to use that technology. Yeah, so I think for us, um, the kids were quite excited by uh, quite a number of them felt empowered to have access to their parents' phone and uh, be able to access the website. Yeah, and it was just a whole new world for them. And of course, I think the most exciting part of our online offerings was the interactive quizzes. And even the parents, from the feedback that we got from parents, quite a number of parents got into it as well. Because we've learned, like Wendy also said, we've learned some new things. So for us, we had been grappling with how do we provide remedial education to many of our pupils that are below grade level. And so this online platform, we are seeing it as an opportunity for children to continue learning even when they get home. I love that idea, um, Dr. Oviawe, the idea of pupils who are going home using their parents' devices and in some instances sharing what they're learning with their parents, many of whom may not have had an opportunity to go to school in the same way that their children are going to school. So that that does create a different kind of virus. It's a viral learning experience. You know, it's also been really interesting to see the way in which technology has changed the way teachers teach. I was just on a call with Sumaya Jain, who, who's a Teach for India alum who runs a network of schools there. And we asked him what, you know, what he was learning because they've had to move all of their schools to complete, of course, online. Um, and he just smiled and said, honestly, I've spent years trying to support and develop my teachers to move from being the, quote, sage on the stage to being the guide and facilitator of student learning, you know, to teach in a much more student-centered way. And he said, I've watched it happen overnight. Like, we went from having 40 hours in person together to having 25 hours of possible instruction online. And so the teachers started sending, you know, the pieces to read, the videos of instruction, and using all of their class time, facilitating discussion, talking about the concepts that the kids hadn't yet understood. Um, and so he's just seen huge potential in technology, not only to engage kids as, and students, as we've been discussing, but also to really accelerate the, the development of teachers. So I have a question for both of you. What's the best case scenario you're hoping for this time next year, next September? Let's start with uh, Dr. Oviawe. You know, we, we've been, since when we resumed online, it's been go, go, go. So I don't think I've really had more than half an hour to just sort of sit back and reflect. But thanks for asking anyway. So you are now going to force me to think about the last few months. <laughs> I think for me, uh, what has been most, most memorable actually covers three key stakeholders of our education system. The teachers, again, like I said, when we started, when we resumed online, I would say a good 10, 15% of our teachers did not have a smartphone, maybe even more. And on their own, they went, because we made it sort of voluntary. If you want to teach online, fine. If you don't want to, um, the government was still going to pay salaries anyways, just to not 
cause more families to fall into poverty. And so what's memorable for me, one of the most memorable moments was seeing our teachers going into town to buy smartphones. And um, so that sort of, um, there was, uh, what is the word, trickle-down effect for the local economy. The other aspect is the parents, particularly communities. We had one particular community where the, the, the community decided because they have a common um, they have a common purse where they save money as a community. And so they decided they were going to dip into their savings to buy a few smartphones uh, for the children in the community. So that was really uh, very encouraging to us. Of course, we stepped in and supported them as well. And then for our pupils, I think it's online learning and the interactive virtual classes. I was pleasantly surprised to see how it improved the reading and writing skills of a number of our pupils. Some of them started sending, uh, doing recording, you know, recorded messages and posting it, you know, on their uh, virtual classrooms to their teachers, thanking them and telling them how grateful they are that the teachers have um, stayed committed to ensuring that they were learning. So these are some of the moments that um, really stood out for me. That's great. And so, uh, Wendy Cobb, best case scenario, um, mm. at the end of the school year, what are you hoping to see? I, I would say, first of all, we've all stepped out of the, the educational box that, that we were in. Um, and, and when we were in that box, we would constantly reflect about the fact that it was created however many decades ago when the world was so very different and how much we need to rethink the purpose of education, you know, to meet the needs of the particular kids we're working with today um, in a very uncertain world. And, and so I'm, I guess my best case scenario is that we actually take advantage of this moment to step back a bit and ask ourselves within our communities um, and countries, you know, what it is that, that we want to be true for our young adults um, by the time they're out of school. You know, I was on a phone call this morning with a minister in, in Kosovo who was saying, you know, school lasts four hours in Kosovo. And what we've realized is now we can, even when we come back, we'll have the four hours of school. It's, it's a shortage of school buildings that leads to that. Um, and, and we'll continue learning at home for two hours, just given what we've learned. So necessity is the mother of invention. And um, we've, I think we've seen a lot of innovations that will serve us very well going forth. So first of all, I hope we don't go back the same. I hope we do take advantage of this moment to reflect and consider what we're aiming for. I think secondly, I, I hope we will make a collective commitment to ensuring that you know, we leverage technology to be a force for equity and excellence in education, which it has the potential to be, but also know that doing so will require both real investments in technology and real investments in, in teachers. Wendy Koff is the CEO and founder of Teach for All, a network of entrepreneurial organizations designed to meet educational needs in schools worldwide. She joined us from New Jersey. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yes, thank you. 
and Dr. Joan Osa of Yahweh is the executive chairperson of the Edo State Universal Basic Education Board in Southwestern Nigeria. She joined us from Benin City. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Gwen. This was a fascinating conversation. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Learning to Overcome. Join us for our next episode, Class is in Session, everywhere, anytime, with Sal Khan, founder of Khan Academy, and Iman Lapumba from Africa's leading edutainment and media company, Ubongo. 